With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. The Rays Radio Network proudly presents This Week in Rays Baseball. Here's your host, Neil Solons. Well, thanks very much for being with us. Um, we bring you our first podcast, technically, of the offseason. Um, hopefully, uh, you enjoyed, um, in total, the 2020 season. I think all of us didn't want the ending uh, that we had, and we're hoping that that first World Series championship is not too far away for the race. But um, it still arguably was the most successful year the franchise has ever had. And hopefully when you look at it in some total, you, you look at it that way. And, and that said, you know, certainly understand the pain and the anguish of losing a game six to the Dodgers, especially the way it happened. Um, and on this podcast, uh, we'll touch on that when we speak in a few moments with the senior VP and GM of the Rays, Eric Neander. Uh, we'll break it down with Mark Topkin of the Tampa Bay Times and start to look forward a bit. The Rays also have announced some roster moves among them. Uh, and I think as expected, the, the team uh, declining the uh, options on both Charlie Morton and Mike Sonino. We do have a lot of that on our blog at raysradio.mlblogs.com. In addition to Eric and Mark, we're also going to chat with one of the race prospects. Tampa Bay has wrapped up its instructional league, and one of the players there was Ford Proctor, who not only has uh, been really impressive offensively, but also is learning how to catch in addition to playing the infield. So we'll chat with him. Uh, but we start, though, with Eric Neander, the race senior VP and GM. And uh, we started by asking how difficult an ending it was for him uh, and how Game 6 impacts his look at the total success and how successful this 2020 season was. In reverse order, absolutely a, a success. I, I don't, you know, I, I think arguably is the, the most successful um, season this franchise has, has ever had and recognize it was under some incredibly challenging and bizarre circumstances. But to, to play as well as our team did during the regular season, you know, to win two-thirds of our games, to get in 20 postseason games to reach game six of the world series to win two world series games. You know, we haven't, that's, you know, that's a first obviously. And, um, the many, uh, memorable moments along the way, I think just, this was a, a truly amazing, incredible, special season without, without question. Um, and, and look that, and that being said, um, you know, game, game six was, um, certainly a, you know, a, a tough way to, to go out and, you know, a, a heartbreaking ending in some respects. And, um, but just about, you know, no matter, no matter how you go out, if you're at that point, you don't win it. It's, it's tough, but I, I don't think, and it, it shouldn't take away from, you know, the many moments along the way that, that helped us reach that point. What do you want to say uh, to fans about game six? Because obviously it's created a lot of angst from a fan standpoint um, and understandably so. Yeah. Certainly a, a tough ending and a really difficult decision that, that, that Kevin had to make. And the, the outcome was, was certainly not the one that, that he desired. Um, but I think, you know, in looking back and, um, 
you know, to, to reach game six of the World Series. You look back at this team, you know, we played more tight games than anybody in baseball this year. Over half of our games were decided by two runs or fewer. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think we won about 70% of them, um, which was by far the most in baseball in those tight games. And there were a few themes to the way that I think Kevin managed this this group this year to get the most out of them. One was in those tight games, those tie games, the up ones, the occasionally the up twos, um, you know, frequently made decisions to, to that he was going to remove the starter uh, too early rather than too late. And uh, with that, he time and time again demonstrated a, you know, a, a belief uh, in, in, in the players and in the roles that, that he put them in and certainly uh, with Nick throughout and um, didn't chase his tail too much too often on, on recent results and, and stuck with guys even when they went through some struggles and uh, um, and, and those two themes certainly uh, played a role I think in, in how game six was handled but you know you, you look back to this season and this wasn't the first decision he made that opened himself up to second guessing but um, you know we went 38 and one, I believe this season when leading after six, I don't think we lost a game all year leading after seven. And uh, I think Kevin deserves a lot of credit um, for, for those results and those outcomes. And obviously it's the players on the field that, that have to get the jobs done and um, ultimately deserve the most credit. But, you know, for, for people that followed our team all year, um, Kevin made a lot of decisions along these lines um, to help us reach this point and many that opened him up to second guessing and it, it stings a little bit that the one at the end of the year um, you know really came to head the way it did and didn't work out but you know for me um, in that moment and, and I'm not privy to all the conversations that go on when he's preparing for a game and, and all that goes into it um, there's just too much going on and you know too many considerations but has my full confidence, the organization's full confidence to make the decisions that are best for the team. And certainly in a case like that, um, you, you have to be pretty fearless. You have to, to really believe in, in what you're doing to open yourself up and to take that on and, and recognize if it doesn't work out what comes with it. And, um, and that's part of it. But um, that moment and, and like so many others through this experience, we're going to learn from, we're going to grow from and we're going to get better. And um, we're right back to work here. Kevin already had a conversation with Blake. Do you feel the need to have any conversation with Blake going into next year at any point this offseason? I mean, that the the ending of the season and then some of the additional um, developments as as that game concluded and on to the next day made it more difficult than 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 usual to to express appropriate gratitude to the group for for the season that they um you know the the ride that they just took us on the season that that we just had um and so with that um i fully expect to to make sure that uh, that i reach out and have conversations with a lot of players just to to thank them and and, and to appreciate them and um to, to maintain strong communication with our group as we head into the off season and figure out how to um you know, put this thing together for a similar run in 2021. But when it comes to, you know, specifically game six and, and for Blake and all that, that's, look, those are, Kevin runs this club and we have a lot of conversations. We, we talk a lot, but as I noted, my last or, you know, response, um, the, the, the game planning, the decision-making, the, all that goes into that, um, I'm, that, that's, 
that's that's Kevin's job. That's his space. I, I contribute. We kick things back and forth because we love to. But um, you know, any any specific decisions about the game, the decision making, um, you know, Kevin's accountable to that. That's that's his space and has certainly my full support and has earned our full confidence for making those decisions, the easy ones and the tough ones. Um, so um, I'd expect to talk to Blake and at minimum um, appreciate him for for how he handled himself in, in the aftermath of that and saw the sound bites and, you know, the, the headlines and this and that. But watching that whole um, his whole post game and, you know, did did compliment Cash as a manager and, you know, the things that are in there that you certainly don't have to do under those circumstances, but certainly speak to, I think, how much he respects and appreciates Kevin despite um, that, that decision itself. Well said. And you say looking forward to 21, you already had to make some decisions, uh, declining the options on Charlie Morton and Mike Sonino. Why did you make those decisions? And, and can you touch on the possibility of either of them, if not both, coming back? Yeah, um, it's it's a lot of fun to play to the last game of the year, but you also have to turn around and make a variety of decisions uh, very quickly there thereafter, and and those were two of them. And and the decisions that were made there were strictly a matter of whether or not to to commit to the option, you know, at the prices uh, outlined by their contracts, or or to decline them and then go from there. And and in those cases, we we declined the option and and determined that on both of those that you know at the at the price points, it's something that we just aren't able to do at this, at this time. But also want to make it really clear to, to our fans and as, as I did to, you know, to, to Charlie and, and to Z that this isn't a closing of the door. We're going to continue talking to those guys. They've meant so much to our success in different ways over the last couple of years, and would would love nothing more than to to bring either of them back if um, if the circumstances are are best for for both sides. So um, you know, with Charlie in particular, you know, he's been very public and, and transparent about his thoughts and considerations and where he is in his career, and um, that's that's not the, you know, the right time or place to have that conversation is not a day or two after the season, but, you know, we're going to talk, um, and, and give him time to, to think through things from his end and, uh, would, would love nothing more than for Charlie to be in our uniform next year. Eric, how much of that had to also do with the fact that you had six players on the 60 that you had to take off by Sunday? Um, it, well, it, it, we do have to get our roster in order here because of the variety of injuries we had this year. Um, so you know that those option decisions will uh, open up a few spots for us here short term and and we need to open up a few more but um the decisions themselves in terms of whether or not to have them back uh the priority was determining whether or not we could um you know it it was in our best interest to bring him back at the at the option you know prices um and, and that was the priority and um there wasn't a whole lot else that uh, that was considered above and beyond that in terms of from a roster standpoint how all that works out that was all very secondary and as we look forward right now um you don't have yanni Torinos for next year um obviously right now not charlie morton you've got blake and tyler and josh fleming and ryan yarborough uh and without not a ton of depth behind it hopefully brendan mckay is back is starting pitching your greatest concern for 2021 right now, or is it improving an offense that had a really tough postseason other than Randy? Yeah. Um, it, <laughs> those, <laughs> those are things that I think on both fronts that we're going to have to take a close look at them. And, um, 
you know, and, and, and look at what we have, the, the health of our group, the timing of when we anticipate different players to, to come back on the pitching side and what we expect to get out of them. Um, that, you know, we're going to have to spend some time on that. And the hitting side, look, um, uh, you know, the, the game six decision, you know, in that one nothing game um, certainly could have been made a little bit easier if we, um, you know, were able to put up a few more runs. And, and it, it was a challenge for our group through the postseason. And, um, you know, that was that was visible. And we need to take a look at that and determine, you know, what, um, you know, if there are things we can we can do better, you know, with the players we have and, you know, um, and, and looking into, you know, their their priorities and, and their approaches and, you know, whether there's different ways to, to mix it up with our group to um, to further uh, improve our chances of having success in the postseason against the arms you face. I, I, I don't know. The the short answer and probably where I should have started is it's a great question and mm. we don't know the answers to that because 2020 took absolutely everything that, that we had from start to finish um, to, to make that season possible under the circumstances and those are those are things we're going to be working on here in short order and a week from now two weeks from now would expect to have much better answers than than this one right here for you and how much value do you put into this year uh as much effort as was put into it it's a two-month season and a one-month postseason versus a six-month season and a one-month postseason that would be normal yeah i did in terms of what we take away from it, you know, it was so disruptive that when you're assessing players and what you expect to get out of them moving forward, you want to be careful there. Um, but when it comes to the actual accomplishments, the on-field accomplishments of this season, um, I believe very strongly they're, they're as good as they, they would be or more than, than any other season. Um, the level of fatigue <laughs> that is uh, certainly that I feel right now and that our staff feels this this wasn't a this wasn't a two-month season this was a season that started back in February as it would any other year and while we weren't playing games um, you know until deep into July um, there was a there was a stress there was a challenge that, that came with all the uncertainty that existed and you were managing so much more than frankly you would have under the conditions where you're just playing games and settling into that routine so um it was it was a heck of a challenge um being one of the last two teams standing and and picking up a couple of wins in the world series um really um in many respects just is that much more special um because of all that that went into this year and, and all the difficulties associated with it to say nothing of the extra postseason round that you had to get through as well no doubt eric good luck with uh, the start of the off season and thanks for a few minutes all right, Neil, I appreciate it. And thanks to all our fans for, for the support. And um, certainly, despite the ending and not coming out on top, hope that there are more than enough moments through this season that they can be proud of and, and, and gave them a little bit of a boost in an otherwise really difficult year. All right, we certainly appreciate the time of Eric Neander, the race senior VP and GM. And Mark Topkin was on his Zoom call with the media and obviously has been covering every uh, bit of the regular season, the postseason, every bit of Rays baseball and all the way through. And Mark, before we touch on what was said here on this Friday, why don't we take a step back and get your perspective on this 2020 season and what it meant to the franchise? Well, Neil, I think it meant a lot to the franchise. And, you know, this is obviously only the second time they've been in the World Series. And, you know, we've discussed the um, whether there's a, an asterisk should be on this season or not, because it was only 60 games during the regular season. It was delayed. I, I think we've also discussed that some would tell you that it was actually tougher to win this year because of mm -hmm. 
all the things that players and teams had to go through. But no doubt this was a special team. I mean, the Rays were building toward this. And here's one thing I'll say, and I know, again, it was interrupted by the three-month uh, pause here, but a team goes to the playoffs the previous year. It, it gets knocked out. It comes to spring training, and it says, that motivated us. We're going to get back and go further this year. And they say that, and a lot of times that doesn't happen. And the Rays did that, Neil. I mean, they were a team that came to spring training saying they were stung. They were ticked off by getting knocked out by the Astros. They felt like getting to that fifth game, they really had a chance to beat them. And their intention was to go further this year and compete for a championship. And they did exactly that. And, and I, I think that's rare for that to happen, that for that to work out that way. And you think of all the injuries they navigated to get there. Uh, some of the players they counted on to do well that didn't, and some of the players they didn't count on who did very well. And obviously Randy Rosarino would be at the top of that list. So I think this will be remembered as a special team. I, I do think that the 08 team will probably have a, a higher spot in people's hearts because that was the first team to get to the World Series in race history. It was the worst to first turnaround. It had some more established veteran-type players that people had grown to know over the years, Carl Crawford, B.J. Upton, James Shields, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Ivan Longoria, of course. Uh, but but I think that this team, because of the, the spunkiness it showed, the ability to draw on the depth, to come up with these guys that even, well, everyone but you was saying, like, who are these guys? Where did John <laughs> Curtis, Aaron Sleggers, I mean, who are these guys? And, and yet here they are playing key roles in, in AL Championship Series and World Series type games. So I think a very special year, a very special team. A lot of credit to Kevin Cash for the job he did managing this team all the way through including the sixth inning of the World Series game. Yeah, Six. I want to touch on that, too. Obviously, we, we talked about that with Eric. And, you know, if I would have said in February, this team will get to Game 6 of the World Series and it will beat the Astros and the Yankees and go to six games with the Dodgers, those were probably the three teams that I would have said in a 162-game season might be slightly favored over the Rays. They almost beat all three of them, yet I think for a lot of fans, they're still going to go back to game six and what might have been. Is more made of that than it should be, or should more be about the fact that this team scored three runs in the last two games of the World Series and really struggled offensively through most of the postseason? I mean, I think they go hand in hand because if the Rays had the kind of offense that could score five or six runs, uh, Kevin Cash may not make that decision either. I mean, I think mm -hmm. at that point, and we know from talking to him, I talked to him, you know, exclusively for the Tampa Bay Times the day after the World Series ended. We all talked to him today. You know, I think it was very clear that, you know, he was managing that game because it was a one nothing game at that point. He had to manage it that way. He didn't think or necessarily be able to bank on the fact that they might score more runs. And so, look, that's a decision that's going to be debated. It's fair to debate. It's a decision that definitely did not work out. Uh, I don't know if that makes it a blunder or if that puts it on the all-time managerial mistakes list that some people are putting it to right now. I mean, the thought process was good. The results were bad. So I, I guess you have to kind of look at it in your own mind. I mean, I was personally surprised. I mean, for whatever that's worth, I thought, you know, the eye test of letting Snell go further would make some sense. But I think the fact that the tying run was on and Mookie Betts was up, and despite that uh, Blake had struck him out the previous two times, uh, they knew the history. I was also surprised that he went to Nick Anderson because Nick Anderson had been struggling. But we've seen Kevin Cash be, Kevin Cash be very faithful and loyal to guys. I mean, he stuck with Brandon Lau and Brandon Lau basically won a World Series game for him by hitting two homers. So uh, a, a lot of elements to that, Neil. And I know we could talk about it for an entire show, if not more. But I do think that uh, I will say this: both Blake Snell at the time after the game and Kevin Cash in a number of interviews has been very uh, stand up and talking about it. And 
you know, sharing his thought process and, and obviously, you know, the frustration. I mean, when I talked to him Wednesday, he said it was an agonizing night for him, just trying to kind of sort out all the what ifs in his mind, but he still felt like it was the right decision at the moment. Are there any repercussions going forward, do you think, Mark, going into 2021? Or, or is everyone kind of, by that point, is it is it gone? I mean, I don't think anybody is going to, uh, like, players are going to be mad at him or there's going to be a, a revolt or, you know, I know you asked him, I think, on the call today, had he reached out to any of the players? And, um, you know, he said he did talk to Blake. He'll talk to some other guys. I mean, I, I think where it's going to come up, and, and look, I'll blame myself here. It's part of my job. It's part of your job. It's part of us immediate job is we're going to bring it up, and we're going to talk to Blake the first day of spring training and ask him, you know, are you still mad, and did you get over it? And the first time Blake gets pulled from a game early, and whether it's even in spring training and we're joking about it or a regular season game, we're going to talk about it. But, you know, if you look at Kevin Cash's managing to get the Rays to this point, he's done that before. He did it in ALCS game six to Blake. He did it in ALCS game seven to Charlie. It didn't work out in six because Diego Castillo gave up the runs, the first runs, the bullpen, first inherited runners, the bullpen allowed to score all postseason. He did it you know, the next day with Charlie and it did work out. They won that game. So it wasn't out of character. That's the other thing that gets lost here is yeah. some people are saying, you know, what was Kevin Cash doing? Or he was following a script or, you know, this decision was made at two o'clock, not at nine thirty or whatever time it was at the moment of the game. But I mean, if you look at Kevin Cash's his history, he's pulled starters earlier than later a number of times this year and other years. And, I mean, and, he's the guy who took Ryan Yarbrough out of a game when he almost had the first complete game in Rays history in what five years. And, and I do find it interesting that people say, you know, darn be the analytics, but you know, the the Dodgers went and used seven pitchers to win a game and pulled. Clayton Kershaw after five and two thirds um, in game five and won those games. And it, it, it was teams using the same information. You using it maybe a little bit differently, but they're both using analytics to advance a talented group. And, and everybody's using analytics. I mean, I, just as a quick uh, side point here, I was on the phone, uh, the zoom call yesterday with Tony La Russa talking about, you know, him taking over the White Sox job and, you know, he's 76 years old and he hasn't managed in nine years. And, you know, he was talking about, you know, how the game has changed and you know, all you do is look at this as ways to get more information. I mean, everybody is embracing analytics to a certain degree and information. And the question is, how do you process it? How do you use it to your advantage? And I think no one would question how prepared Kevin Cash is and how he has all the information available. Now, does he put more weight to certain information than other information on certain days and at certain times? Obviously, he does just like anybody would. But, I, you know, he was not unprepared. He knew what Nick Anderson yeah. had done his last six games. He knew that Mookie Betts' numbers were actually better against right-handers and left-handers. He knew how good Blake Snell looked, uh, and he still made the decision that what he thought was best to win the game for the Rays at that point. Exactly. And now the Rays have to make decisions for 2021. And I don't know, based on all the players whose options were not picked up, that not picking up the options of Charlie Morton and Mike Zanino immediately probably shouldn't come as a great surprise, should it? No, and I, I think if you take, you know, the the fondness that everybody around the race has for Charlie Morton out of it, and you, you look at it as, as Eric Neander and his crew have to as a business decision, paying Charlie Morton a guaranteed $15 million for next year probably was not a, would not be a smart business decision. You know, he was missed time this year uh, on the injured list. He was not necessarily as effective. You know, his bounce back was a little different this year. He's obviously going to be a year older next year. You know, no one knows what the impact of this short season is going to have specifically on pitchers if they go back to a full season next year. 
you know, there's some people who, you know, more so with younger pitchers only want pitchers to increase their innings by 15 or 20% year to year. And, you know, now you're going to have guys going, you know, from one third of a season back to a full season. I mean, would Charlie Morton make 30 starts next year? Would you think that at this point? You know, probably not just because of health and age and things like that. So I, I get it. I see why they did it. Um, I think the fact that he really wants to be here would create an environment where they could work out another deal to bring him back. But, you know, he's on the free agent market. And, and while we think that overall the industry is going to be depressed financially because of all the losses associated with the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, you know, there's always a couple teams that go against the grain here and may decide, you know, we're going to spend money and, and go out and pick up some of these guys that are a little lower than what typically would be market price. And Charlie Morton would be a prime starter on that list. Correct. But I think there's also a factor here, and, and I don't think it can be underestimated, and that's the fact that he's got a wife and four kids in Bradenton, and playing at home did mean a whole lot to him. So I, I still think there's a, a, I won't say probability, I'll say a possibility, a good possibility that he could still end up with the race, assuming he wants to keep playing, because that's still not a guarantee. Right. And there's two questions there. One is, and, and they're intertwined, does Charlie Morton want to keep playing? And does Charlie Morton want to keep playing if he has to play for someone else besides the Rays? And he does have a great setup. I mean, it was literally a situation where Charlie Morton could live at home all year because he's 45 minutes from the Rays spring training site in Port Charlotte, and he's 45 minutes from the Trop. So, you know, there's no other team that could offer him uh, both of those conveniences to be able to live at home year-round. Now, he could certainly sign with a team that has spring training in the, in the Tampa Bay slash Bradenton slash Fort Myers area and be able to buy those extra six weeks at home, but he's obviously going to have to go live somewhere else during the season. So, you know, if it, if it came down where one team gave Max and the Rays were a little bit under X, I would think he would stay here and come back. If he didn't get an offer he deemed worth his time to go play, then he might just say, uh, take it to the house and retire. But he did say earlier this year, he didn't want to go out on this kind of an odd mm -hmm. year. So I would think he's going to want to play. I would think the Rays would have an opportunity to resign him, but you know, if somebody comes in and offers him that $15 million that the Rays didn't, or even, you know, a multi-year deal at somewhere close to that number, you know, I think we'll find out then how much, you know, it was important to Charlie Morton to play here or how much it was important to Charlie Morton to play somewhere else and be rewarded, you know, what he viewed properly financially. And some of it may be pandemic related too, because I think he also has stated he, he did not want to you know, be in a situation where his family couldn't watch him and he couldn't, you know, and he couldn't play in front of fans. That does mean a lot. And that's a lot that we really don't know about right now. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of this is uncertain and it's really going to be in Charlie's head. And, and Neil, you know him as, as well as I do. I mean, Charlie is one of the most thoughtful players right. that we've all run across. So if he's going to put some time and effort into thinking this through, it, Charlie Morton's going to do that for sure. No doubt. And as we start to move to the offseason, the race had to clear some roster space. So the decisions on Charlie Morton and Mike Zanino are not necessarily roster space motivated, but they do create room. Aaron Loop is a free agent, and then you broke news that the Rays had passed three more players through outright waivers, and, and they passed through rather uh, passed through waivers. And Michael Perez, one of their other catchers, was claimed uh, on waivers by the Pirates. He was. He's going to go to the Derek Shelton hitting school and go up there uh, with the former Rays coach and, and join the Pirates, but. It does create an interesting dynamic because at this, as we sit here and, and record this, Neil, uh, the only catcher on the race 40-man roster is Ronaldo Hernandez, who, while a very promising prospect, is certainly not considered ready to play in the big leagues and certainly not on an everyday basis. So 
you know, the door is open to re-sign Mike Zanino. Uh, obviously, Michael Perez is now out of the organization. They were not impressed enough with, with what they saw from him. So they're going to have to go out and find some catchers. There's nobody else that they have. I mean, Kevin Smith, who was, like I said, he did clear waivers, but I, I don't think they see him as an everyday type guy either. He's more of your number two or three guy as he was here uh, during this stretch. So the Rays are in the market for catching, whether it's Zanino and somebody else or it's two new guys totally. Um, I think that's one of the things we're going to watch play out. I, I can tell you this, though. I know some people already tweeted this. They did not do this to clear space to go sign JT Real Muto, who's the number one catcher on the free agent market. I would, I would think you're right on that, too, um, as usual. What do you see as the other key storylines now for the offseason, Mark, as we try and look at, forward at this? Do they have a greater desire to now go out and get starting pitching, not knowing the Charlie Morton situation and some of the players they had injured this year? Or is it to bolster an offense that in the postseason was kind of Randy and a lot of other guys who were not quite on track? Yeah, you know, with, with all the pitching injuries they had, you would think there would be more of a priority to go get some more pitching. But on the other hand, you know, we know they have Blake Snell. We know they have Tyler Glass now. We know they have Ryan Yarbrough. And you've got Brent Honeywell, who should be ready to make it to the big leagues, uh, assuming he has no additional arm injuries. I know he was throwing uh, as part of the taxi squad during the postseason. We saw Josh Fleming come up and do pretty well uh, for the Rays in the role he was cast in as a starter. And then, you know, he did some relief work in the postseason, maybe not quite as effective. Uh, we saw Shane McClanahan. I think he's going to become a reliever, but he's been a starting pitcher before. He made it to the postseason roster and pitched in a major league postseason game, even though he hasn't even been in a triple-A game yet in the regular season, which is kind of funny to think about. But So they've got some arms here. I mean, Brendan McKay is not going to be ready at the start of the season, but they expect him to make a full recovery and be ready at some point during the season. So uh, I think you're going to see a couple of things. I think there's a glut of outfielders and a glut of relief pitchers. Although they did clear that out a little bit with Kittredge and Rowe going through waivers uh, and being unclaimed. So they're free agents now. They could bring them back if they want them to. But there's still too many relievers and too many outfielders. So I think you're going to see some trades. There's always some trades for the Rays. They really don't ever go through an offseason without making them. And, you know, where do you find that offense? So, and where does that guy play? I mean, catcher you, at this moment would make sense. There's not a lot of offensive catchers out there that are certainly going to be in the Rays price range. And, you know, where, where does that guy play? If you've got Choi, if you've got Brandon Lau, if you've got Willie Adamas, if you've got uh, Yanni Diaz, we already talked about there's a glut of outfielders. So I, I don't know where that bat goes, but I think adding, finding a way to get some more consistent offense would make a little bit of sense. Mark, it's certainly going to be an interesting offseason to watch, and we certainly appreciate some time and obviously continue to enjoy your coverage that people can go check out by going uh, – to the Tampa Bay Times online, getting the newspaper in person, or uh, checking you out on Twitter at TBTimes underscore race. Any of those work, Neil. Always fun to talk to you. It's been a fun season. I appreciate the opportunity to be part of your podcast uh, during the season. Well, great to spend some time with Mark Topkin of the Tampa Bay Times. And right now we uh, turn on the prospect side of things. And the Rays are wrapping up their instructional league in Port Charlotte. And a guy who was part of it and also part of the alternate site and spent some time uh, playing in the Constellation League in Texas, is uh, prospect Ford Proctor, who now joins us. Ford, first of all, uh, how crazy a ride has this been for you, um, and what have you learned about yourself? Yeah, it's been very unique. Uh, I mean, coming into the 2020 season and offseason, you know, I don't think anyone could have expected how this season played out with, uh, with everything that happened. But for me, it just, it helped it helped me to learn how to adapt. I mean, there was really nothing we could do about what happened this season without being able to play. Um, and that being said, you know, I was 
I was really fortunate to be able to find somewhere to play um, during all this and, and get live game reps. So, How did you get set up with the Constellation League, and was it a challenge to get permission to be able to play in that independent league as a raised, you know, contracted minor leaguer? Yeah, it was pretty simple, actually. I, uh, I heard from a couple of, of guys that are in other organizations that I know um, that the league was was going to try to to happen and then you know leading up to it started to hear rumors that it was going to happen so I just reached out to my agent um he spoke with the Rays got the okay from them and then from there it was you know it was pretty simple but the league was right around Houston which is where I spend the off season so it worked out perfect so you basically were able to in essence sort of almost work from home so to speak while doing this and get the reps right yep I uh, I spent my or where I spend the off season is in Houston. That's the same place that I live for the league. So yeah, I was I was able to work from home essentially, and um, that was great because my my family was was there, of course, and they were able to come see games. Which being a minor leaguer is not, uh, you know, that's not always possible for them to see my games. So that aspect of it was really cool. You put up really good numbers in Bowling Green in 2019. But the numbers you put in a very short time span in the, the Constellation League were phenomenal. Is there anything you did differently offensively that led to the production numbers you put up? Um, really just made some adjustments over the offseason. Um, you know, got after that and then played in that league. And not, not too many drastic changes, but just tried to continue to, to develop as a hitter. Um, and once again, just, just being able to have live at-bats was, was very critical for me. What was the, the quality level of the league like, and how was it in the midst of a pandemic in terms of you know, trying to keep the players safe, too? Yeah, it was definitely a challenge with the safety side of it. We, I think we lucked out. We only had around five or six positive tests. Um, so just to be able to get the whole league over the two-month span in, without any major hurdles was, was very fortunate. Um, and it was good competition. I mean, everyone there was, was looking to get their work in. And, you know, I think everyone was able to do that. Was it pretty varied? Were there a lot of double-A guys, single-A guys, triple-A guys? What was kind of the mix? Uh, there were a lot of double-A, triple-A, and then a handful of ex-big league guys in the league. So it was a pretty wide range of, of levels. And then from there, the Rays decided to bring you to the alternate site to be part of the 60-player pool. What did that mean to you? Yeah, that was really cool. Um, you know, I was very, very honored to be invited there. You know, there were great players there. Um, it was a great opportunity. I really enjoyed it. And just to be able to, to work with, you know, our staff and to be around some of those guys was a lot of fun. What'd you learn? How'd you grow? Um, so... A big focus for me while I was there was um, learning how to catch. That was the first time I had caught, essentially, since I was a kid. Um, so I was able to work with our head minor league catching coordinator, and it was great just to get a lot of one-on-one -on -one with him, um, being that I'd never caught before. So he was great in helping me, and then from there I got game experience, which was, which was huge for me. So how did that conversation start to say, okay, you've been, what, uh, a utility guy um, who's played around the diamond at second, short, and third. Now we want you to be a catcher. 
Yeah, I, I honestly wasn't expecting it, but I, I spoke with my agent who was in contact with a few people um, with the Rays, and they ran the idea by him, and, and we both talked it out and decided that, you know, this was the perfect time to learn a new position, being just how unique this year was. I had I had time to to learn a new position. I mean, this was the perfect time, and we both thought that it would be a great um, opportunity for me, and it would add some versatility to my game. And adding another position, I think, is just – know would never hurt so that's that's pretty much how the, the process went so did you catch games at the alternate site in the 60 player pool period or in instructional league or a bit of both so the first i'd say two or three weeks of the alternate site was pretty much me just doing drills learning the basics of, of catching and just learning you know techniques and all that and then i was able to catch in a game in the last two inner squads at the alternate side and then leading into instructs I caught um, a decent amount of games so for the past month or so I was able to to get game experience at, at instructs. So will this be a full-time switch for you or are you going to be like a catcher who also plays other spots what's what's the thought there? Yeah so the, the plan is to catch uh, as well as play infield so my goal is to is to essentially do both which would be a pretty valuable guy to have on a ball club for sure. Um, and who's been helpful among the other players, whether they were at the alternate site, um, along with your rover, Tomas Francisco, and some of the other catchers you saw in Instructs? Yeah, all the guys have been helpful because a, a decent amount of them um, were actually infielders prior to being catchers as well. So I could relate to them on that um, and just kind of get feedback from them on some of the things that they struggled with leading into it or some things that helped them out as far as the transition goes. So that was huge, just, you know, talking to other teammates and seeing if they had any tips for me. So, yeah, that was that was very helpful. And who was a guy that was really hard for you to catch because the Rays have a lot of prospects with a lot of nasty stuff? Uh, no one in particular really comes to mind, but for the most part, all of I mean, most every one of our guys, you know, pounds the zone, does a good job of commanding their pitches. So they all make it pretty easy on us uh, behind the plate. And as you get ready for next year, Ford, how, what do you, types of things do you now do to train differently as a guy who's going to catch and play infield as a guy who versus a guy who was an infielder? For the most part, uh, my offseason would say the same other than I'll just add in, of course, catching drills and try to catch as many bullpens um, with guys that I train with as I can and just work as much as I can behind the plate. Does your agency have some guys who are currently big league catchers that you can pick their brain? Uh, yes, yes, they do. I haven't been in contact with any of them, but they definitely do. Um, and and what did it mean just to be part of this group? Because the race had a lot of players who, I mean, this goes for every organization. You were among a select group. There were a lot of guys who didn't even get reps this year, had to do it all at home. Yeah, it was it was just a great opportunity to be able to play with being that we didn't have any games this year. Being able to have game experience was a uh, was an awesome thing for me. And I was very fortunate to have that. Being invited to the alternate side and instructs was, was awesome, and I was very fortunate for that.
And one other thing I was curious, obviously you took a lot of major steps forward. Who's a guy that you saw, let's say last year, you hadn't seen him for a year, and you were amazed at how much growth they made on their own? Uh, you know, I think all, all of our guys work extremely hard in the off season, but the Rays do a great job of, of staying on us and helping us through a, a plan basically in the off season that we can stick to. And, I mean, all of our guys get after it in the offseason and, and do everything they can to prepare for the upcoming year. Well, Ford, I appreciate a few minutes. Um, best of luck this offseason, and, you know, hopefully things are at least a little more normal next year in spring training. Yeah, I hope so, too. Thank you for having me on. Really appreciate the time that Ford Proctor spent with us, plus Senior VP and GM Eric Neander, as well as Mark Topkin of the Tampa Bay Times. We already have a number of analysis pieces and news pieces up on our blog, raceradio.mlblogs.com. We'll continue to do that during the off-season. And in addition to that, I um, want to thank you for being with us and being along for the ride. If there's something you want us to focus on, believe me, we'll be hitting on everything pretty much on a weekly basis as we go through the off-season. In the meantime, we thank you for being with us. Thanks for listening, and we'll chat to you soon.